0: Welcome to the Patricia Raskin Show, the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions. And now, the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio. Here's your host, Patricia Raskin.
1: Hello, everyone, and we are back. And now we're switching gears. We're going to talk about freedom and actually freedom of speech in a sense, but we're going to talk about academic freedom and what the future of it is. My guest is Henry Reichman. He's an emeritus professor of history at California State University, East Bay, and chairman of the AAUP's Committee on Academic Freedom and Tenure. He's the author of the new book, The Future of Academic Freedom. He delves into specific threats with the potential to ruin careers, exacerbate the crisis in higher education, and but he also takes a look at, you know, what we can do to defend our academic freedom. How can we illuminate the meeting and understand the challenges that we face, but also, you know, discover um, how we can move through expression and through our freedom, even though there are a lot of constraints right now. So welcome. Welcome, Henry Reichman. Welcome, Hank.
2: Well, oh, it's my pleasure to be here.
1: Thank you. All right, so let's uh, let's take a look at this. There's an awful lot to go through. What do you mean when you say academic freedom? Is that freedom of speech? Is it freedom of study? What does it mean?
2: Well, it's, very, it's closely related to freedom of speech, but not quite the same. Um, academic free, freedom of speech is something to which we all should be entitled, uh, irrespective of our views, you know, the, the free marketplace of ideas, so to speak. But academic freedom is something that, that faculty members need to, to earn through Expertise in their discipline. Uh, so, for instance, I can uh, I can advocate. Well, a person could advocate Holocaust denials, for example, in public without fear of uh, of arrest or anything like that. Perhaps not fear of ridicule, but uh, but if I were to teach that in my European history classes, my colleagues could very well say you're no longer suited to be a uh, uh, a, a teacher. So um, academic freedom essentially has, has three components. The freedom to conduct research as we, as we see fit and to control the results of that research. The freedom to teach our subjects in the classroom in accordance with the principles of our uh, respective disciplines. And then this is the part where it becomes closest to freedom of speech. We've always argued in the AAUP for over a century now that faculty members should be entitled to the right to speak as citizens, both Citizens of their institution and citizens of the broader society without fear of institutional discipline.
1: But that's not always true. I mean, it's not always true. It should be. be. I, I mean,
2: uh, one of the principles of my book is to say that throughout its, uh, the whole history of the concept, which really dates back in the United States to the beginning of the 20th century, uh, academic freedom has always been something that's been contested and, uh, and controversial.
1: What would you say are the threats right now? What, what's the biggest threat? Well, the, the single
2: biggest threat, I think, to academic freedom right now has been the erosion of the tenure system. Uh, when the AAUP was founded in 1915, only a tiny handful of faculty members had, uh, had tenure, which is we've always felt is the strongest protection for academic freedom, uh, and by the 19, early 1970s, about two thirds of all people teaching in higher education were either tenured or eligible for tenure. Uh, mm-hmm. today, however, unfortunately, only about a quarter of those teaching in higher education, uh, 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 are in, even in the tenure system, and even if you exclude graduate student instructors, still two thirds are working on contingent, often part time uh, contracts. Even though uh, they're often called temporary but, contracts, but some of those people have had temporary contracts for fifteen mm-hmm. or twenty years.
1: But but here's my question about tenure: Can can tenure make people um, not as motivated because they know whatever they do, they're going to stay?
2: Well, that could be, and I I certainly, with uh, the uh, more than a million people teaching in higher education, I'm sure you can always find examples of people like that, but you can find that in almost any profession. But the the thing that people don't understand about tenure, it's not a guarantee of lifetime employment. It simply states that a a faculty member who has earned tenure uh, cannot be dismissed without except for cause. Now, we in the AUP have never Mm -hmm. defined what cause is, but there are obvious things. Not doing your job, uh, research fraud, sexual harassment, are three obvious uh, examples. Uh, So only for cause and only after a due process procedure. Uh, And we believe that that's the strongest protection for tenure. And in fact, actually... The tenure system usually, in my experience, guarantees that uh, faculty members who earn it have gone through a much more rigorous supervising process and observing of their teaching and uh, assessment of their scholarship than people who are hired in short-term part-time appointments ever go through. And the result is a much greater quality.
1: Yeah, because they're with it. They're staying with it day in and day out. As well. Exactly. I also want have, to say the, the AAUP the is the American Loyalty. Association of University Professors. So I wanted to let people know that we don't all, not everybody knows what that is. But, but going back to, to that organization, the American Association of University Professors, I know that it was um, created you know, in terms of economic and social inequality and to, you know, to really fight that. But the question is now we have capitalism. We have, you know, universities that are functioning like businesses and with hierarchical governance. So what can we do about that?
2: Well, I think the history of the AAUP provides a a lesson of what we can do about that, because it's not like 1915, we didn't have capitalism. Uh, And indeed, universities, uh, in fact, one of the major motivations for the founders of of the AAUP was that universities were dominated by boards of trustees associated with the You know, the big robber barons of the age, the Rockefellers, the Jay Goulds, uh, the Mellons, et cetera. Uh, And university presidents were often autocrats who basically did what they pleased. Um, And yet they managed, uh, the AUP and, of course, the faculty as a whole managed over um, many decades to uh, uh, democratize governance of universities. Uh, Not in the sense that these are, you know, democracies run by the students and faculty, but that there's shared governance in which faculty members uh and and to some degree students have the appropriate voice in the institution uh, and enjoy academic freedom and and that built a much stronger higher education system and now I think we've seen uh my book discusses a lot of erosion of that I just you know talked about the erosion of tenure but I uh, I'm optimistic that if if our forefathers so to speak did it 100 years ago we can do it again
1: Absolutely. What about social media today? Does that pose an issue for academic freedom?
2: Well, it certainly does. Uh, In a certain sense, what it does is actually exaggerate uh, problems that had always been there, uh, that faculty members historically uh, have often gotten into trouble when they speak as citizens uh, write an op-ed piece, uh, say something in, uh, at a speech or something like that. Uh, but in, you know, a hundred years ago, there was a limited audience for each one of those. Uh, nowadays, of course, a faculty member says something, perhaps even mistakenly or foolishly on social media, uh, and they risk being, you know, threatened by an online mob, so to speak. And suddenly there's, you know, their institution is bombarded with, uh, demands for their dismissal, etc. Uh, And in a certain sense, there's not a whole lot we can do about that. The people who complain on social media, even the ones who who make threats as long as they're not what the law calls true threats, mm. are entitled to their free speech. But the institutions, the universities really need to stand up to that and simply state, you know, we don't care what the person said. They have academic freedom and we are not gonna limit their free speech as citizens.
1: So I wanna I wanna personalize this a little bit. I wanna ask you this question. So uh example would be you're a professor and well, I'll give you the perfect example of what we talked about with the Holocaust. You're not a Holocaust denier, of course, and you're teaching this to your students. And let's say you have a student that is a Holocaust denier, whose parents have said it never happened. And they're fighting with this. And you as a professor, how do you handle that? What do you do? Well, I, well,
2: I think... I, I, I think- a good teacher will always recognize that students have the right to to, to disagree with things that the faculty member says uh, and to and to raise arguments as long as they don't distort the whole class and dominate it. I, I would probably, if, if that came up in the class as part of the curriculum, I would have a discussion uh, in, and explain why historians certainly don't believe that the Holocaust is a hoax and why, you know we think it's uh, it's a problematic position ultimately the student of course has the right to say i still don't agree with you but they don't have the right to put you know to uh to, let me put it this way, to, to say that that's what historians say. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me give a, yeah. a, a different sort of example. For example, a student in a biology class who believes in the um, biblical theory of creation or, or a uh, geology class and says the earth is 6,000 years old, uh, that's a religious position that that student is fully entitled to hold. Uh, okay. But the student is not entitled to demand that the exam in geology, that that should be considered an accurate and correct answer.
1: Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. what about what about, you know, leftist authoritarianism that you're seeing often on college campuses? Um, are campuses hotbeds for that, do you think? Not. well i think
2: I think that's been much exaggerated uh, it 's true that especially in the humanities and social sciences, most faculty members are are on the liberal end of uh, of the spectrum, although most are actually fairly moderate liberals uh, and actually if, if the largest major in all American higher education right now is the business major and overwhelmingly business faculty are rather conservative uh, and indeed um, One could well make the argument, as somebody recently did uh, on our AAUP blog, that, uh, in fact, they're more uh, indoctrinating than any of the the liberals. To be sure, there's also, of course, student activism and student left-wing activism is, is sort of at a high point compared to any time, I think, since probably even the 1960s. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's overwhelmingly a good thing, even though sometimes those students go overboard and they try to deny the rights of free speech of their opponents. I think uh, events recently are indicating that they're beginning to learn that that's not only wrong, it's also counterproductive. Uh, but I welcome debate on campus uh, from whatever Perspective, and I think we we see a lot of it. Uh, I think you compare; it's a time of political polarization in the society as a whole, so it's going to happen on campus as well. But I think the extent of debate, difference, and free discussion on most college and university campuses is far greater than in almost any other institution, perhaps any other institution in the United States.
1: And so, invited speakers who might be provocateurs, you know, an Ann Coulter. Uh, for example, do you think they're entitled to a platform?
2: If they have been invited by a legitimate campus group, yes, they are entitled to a platform on campus. That doesn't mean they're entitled to be free of criticism. Doesn't mean that those who oppose their ideas do not have the right to uh, protest their appearance, to uh, create counter-events, etc. Indeed, in some cases, I think it's almost an obligation on the university when a speaker comes to campus whose whose ideas and approach challenge the very purpose of higher education, the very principles of the institution, to mount uh, counter-programming. Uh, but I don't think that they that anyone has the right to tell an invited speaker you cannot speak.
0: All
1: right. On that note, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are talking to Henry Reich about his brand new book, which is called The Future of Academic Freedom. And we'll talk more about this when we come back. We'll talk about, you know, what is the marketplace of ideas right now? And what about certain forms of speech what about outside donors? Does this, uh, how does this tie into academic freedom and differences and maybe um, where we are right now in our political system in terms of academic freedom? You're listening to the Patricia Raskin Show right here on voiceamerica.com. Again, my guest is Henry Henry Reichman, and he is the, it's the book is The Future of Academic Freedom. We'll be right back.
3: Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
2: Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to "Getting In: A College Coach Conversation," hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college, and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at
3: 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's Voice America TRN.
1: And he is the author of the brand new book, The Future of Academic Freedom. Dr. Reichman is an emeritus professor of history at California State University, East Bay, and chairman of the AAUP's Committee on Academic Freedom. And we're talking about what academic freedom means. Hank, I want to ask you about um, Trump's executive order on campus free speech. Uh, What you see, how you feel about that, where is that?
2: Well, to, to, to give a little background for it, uh, President Trump, uh, largely in responding to the concerns among his base that somehow uh, free speech is being denied by liberal professors and leftist students, uh, issued a, a, an order, executive order that there should be no federal funding for institutions that do not guarantee free speech. Now, in general, many people have said this, just my own view, that this is largely a, sol- a solution in search of a problem. Uh, institutions have, have... Most institutions, the, the free speech is one of their basic principles, and academic freedom is as well. And indeed, if there's a public institution, denial of free speech is actually against the law, So um, already against the law. Uh, so. You know, we think that the, this executive order is, uh, is at best, it will just create more paperwork for universities to fill out. Um, but at worst, it, it could actually stifle free speech in the name of free speech, uh, which is sometimes what happens when you get legislation trying to tell colleges and universities how they should function uh, and not recognize the importance of their autonomy as, as educational institutions. Um, mm-hmm. To put it in a broader light, I think, uh, I, as you know, that my, my book concludes with a chapter about academic freedom under what I call the Trump regime. And I began it by pointing out that uh, president, you know, the problems that I have described in the book certainly don't begin or end with President Trump, and many of the policies that are wrongheaded are actually have been bipartisan. Um, but I do think uh, the rhetoric coming from uh, President Trump in particular and his supporters, has in some ways erased the political polarization of the tension in the, mm-hmm. in the country as a whole and has thus yeah. had a similar effect on campuses. And, and that makes it much more difficult for faculty members and students to exercise their uh, academic freedom and free speech rights.
1: And that brings me to the question of, you know, in your book you reject the notion that universities are a marketplace of ideas. But shouldn't we all be able to discuss and examine and debate on college campuses?
2: Well, let me make clear that the universe—the purpose of the university is, is to discover new knowledge and, and disseminate it to people. That's basically research and teaching. And insofar those functions are there, uh, it's a marketplace of ideas only insofar as any new ideas need to be tested out through debate. But some ideas, I mean, you know, are, are just not part of the university now in order to teach people successfully. Students in particular on the campus need to have the right to raise questions including ignorant questions. I mean we're talking often about young people who are just opening their their minds to new ideas. So they're going to ask questions and they're going to raise ideas that are that, that uh, the faculty and educated people have already long uh, rejected uh, but they need to raise them. And so in a sense I think we have to make a distinction between the classroom, the library, the laboratory, the work of the university, where it is not just a free marketplace, that it's, it's about the advancement of scholarship, and the broader community and aspect around the university, where I think we need to have as many different ideas available as possible, and no idea should be rejected simply okay. through censorship, but rather mm-hmm. should, if it, it should, if through debate and refutation should be dealt mm-hmm. with.
1: What about donors? What impact does that have when people are giving a lot of money and they have certain perspectives? I mean, we see this in political and politics all the time. How do you handle that when you might have a conservative, a big conservative donor, you know, at a school that isn't conservative?
2: Well, you know, the more that we have as a society over the last 30 or 40 years defunded higher education mainly public education, but it has had an impact as well on private higher education. Uh, the impact has been varied. I mean, the obvious one is the increasing tuition expenses for students and the uh, hiring of part-time and contingent low-cost faculty members that I talked about earlier, but it also has meant that universities are increasingly looking to outside philanthropy uh, for support. And there's nothing wrong with that in principle. And in fact, it's would hardly be surprising that donors are going to give to things that they support and not things they don't right. support. Uh, uh, and, and they have every right to do that, of course, whether they're conservative, liberal, or apolitical, whether but, they want to donate to But can they have boundaries,
1: Hank? Can they put boundaries on yes, that? Yes, and
2: that's what I have to get to, is, is there, there, are, there are boundaries. As long as those donations do not impinge upon the university's own right to determine what is taught, who do, does the teaching, uh, what is studied, uh, and you know the, the basic principles and rights of the faculty and of the institution institutional autonomy uh, and what has tended to happen in recent years in particular it's come from the right side of the political spectrum, although some of it has come from the left as well have been donations which carry sort of um, conditions on them. Uh, for example, the, the uh, Charles Koch Foundation has been found a number of uh, donations to basically uh, ask for a veto power of who can be hired and fired. Um, they've put their own people in charge of certain places. They've, they've established a curriculum not established by the faculty. Uh, and this is highly problematic. It will be highly problematic, frankly, if it came from the left as well.
1: Hmm. Yeah, and and but uh, uh, but are there safeguards to help that in well, those the, cases?
2: Well, the, the, the biggest safeguard is transparency. Is that I believe all donor agreements should be public, uh, and any conditions should be available and known. And moreover, the faculty should have some supervision over the implementation and periodic review of how uh, donations are being handled, usually through the academic senate or some kind of committee. Um, And where we've gotten into trouble with these donations is when the faculty organs, the the, uh, committees in charge, the uh, academic centers have been bypassed or where the agreements have been kept secret.
1: Absolutely. What are your closing thoughts, Hank, for our listeners on academic freedom? What do you want to leave our listeners with?
2: Well, I want to. Leave, I don't want to leave your listeners with a doom and gloom. I don't want to think that. I mean, my my book outlines a lumber of very serious problems we are facing in the realm of academic freedom. But it's also, I hope, a, a kind of call to arms, uh, figuratively, of course, not only for the faculty but for the, the public as well. Because I think uh, we have a great higher education system in the United States. We and we've built a long tradition of academic freedom. Uh, and it's a solid foundation on which we can build and which we can resist some of these deleterious things that I talk about in the book. Uh, and I think, we're, to put it bluntly, we're in a stronger position than the founders of the AUP were a little over 100 years Good. ago. And yet they've succeeded, so, so can we.
1: Absolutely. How can people find your book? Uh, it's the available at Amazon.com.
2: It's available directly from their publisher, Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, and I hope at a uh, good number of bookstores, especially academic bookstores.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. Henry Reichman, for being on this program. It was very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Stay on the line. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, that wraps up this edition of the Patricia Raskin Positive Living Show. Remember, uh, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. You can find me on Facebook, just like me, Patricia Raskin, Raskin Resources. Or if you'd like my newsletter, which will show you who my guests are every month on the show, as well as other things, write me, Patricia, at PatriciaRaskin.com. Until next time, have a great week.
0: Bye for now.